0: You know, if Jesus were more culturally relevant, he would have said something like this. Blessed are the affluent, for theirs are the vacation homes and fancy cars and designer clothing. Blessed are the leisurely, for they shall be comfortable. Blessed are the self-reliant, for they shall be carefree. Blessed are those who party, for they shall be called the ones with the good life. Blessed are the power brokers, for they shall inherit the perks and promotions. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for attention, for they shall be retweeted and walk the red carpet. Blessed are the healthy and beautiful, for theirs are the thin waists and thick hair and white teeth and bronzed bodies. Blessed are the intelligent, for they shall gain admission into more prestigious schools. Blessed are the quick-witted and articulate, for they shall win the arguments and own their opponents. Blessed are the well-educated for theirs are the higher-paying jobs. Blessed are those who are popular, for theirs are the social media followers. The powerful, the affluent, the beautiful, the popular, the self-reliant, the influential, the happy. These are the fortunate ones in our culture. These are the enviable ones. These are the ones you want to be, right? Our culture preaches this sermon day in and day out. We hear it in our music, we see it in our movies, we experience it in our social media feeds. We're constantly told that it's better to be affluent, to be powerful, to be popular. It's more fortunate to be happy, self-reliant, carefree. This is the way. Follow it. And whether we're aware of it or not, our culture consistently informs our thoughts and forms our desires and our beliefs and our values. In other words, our culture is an active agent of discipleship in our lives. And this is precisely the reason why we're taking time as a church to study the Sermon on the Mount. Because if we're not actively apprenticing the distinctly different way of Jesus, we'll be automatically discipled more by our culture and its norms. And since our mission as a church is to form authentic Jesus followers rather than culturally informed Christians... We need to ask and answer the question, how do we apprentice the way of Jesus together? How do we, as the local expression of the church of Christ, how do we apprentice the way of Jesus as a body of believers? That being said, welcome to Fellowship Nashville. My name is Mark, I serve as one of the pastors here, and it's my distinct pleasure and privilege to serve as your tour guide this morning as we continue, verse by verse, through the greatest sermon ever preached. Now don't hear me wrong, I'm not referring to the sermon I'm about to preach. Um, Far from it. Uh, In fact, I'm anticipating that at least a few of you will nod off because, frankly, I'm not that engaging. But I'm referring to, as the greatest sermon ever preached, I'm referring to one preached by Jesus about 2,000 years ago on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's recorded for us in the book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. In fact, the picture that we're using... As our title slide for our sermon series was taken at the location where scholars believe that Jesus preached this exact sermon, this powerful, famous, and life-altering message. If you've been with us the past two weeks, you already know that Jesus begins his sermon with eight provocative, perspective-shifting, cultural-challenging statements that are often called the Beatitudes, The English name beatitude comes from the Latin root beatus, meaning happy or blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed, 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 blessed. Eight times. The Greek word behind the English adjective, blessed, in each of these eight provocative statements from Jesus, is makarioi. Say that with me. Makarioi. Okay, you learned some Greek. Congratulations. And this is a Greek adjective used to describe someone who is in in an enviable or favorable position as a result of receiving God's favor or provision. Somebody who is to be envied because they're in a favorable state or favorable position. And in first century Jewish culture, these statements were just as radical from Jesus, just as provocative as they are to our 21st century American culture. Because in Jesus' day, everyone assumed they already knew who was blessed. It was all too obvious who enjoyed the favor of God. And not much has changed in 2,000 years. Who was assumed to be blessed in Jesus, name, in Jesus' day? Well, the self-reliant, the powerful, the affluent, the popular, the dignified, the successful, the happy, the full, the beautiful, the people at the top, the rulers, the Pharisees, the elites, the ones whose lives were going well. They're the blessed ones. But that's not who makes Jesus' list, is it? So right at the beginning of his sermon, Jesus is attempting to recalibrate the perspective of his listeners. He's trying to reprogram our hearts and our minds. Jesus is telling his disciples, including us, hey, you've got this whole thing backwards. You're looking at life through a faulty set of lenses, I like how Ryan described the Beatitudes for us a couple weeks ago. The Beatitudes of Jesus are a perspective recalibrator. I like that. Perspective recalibrator. a, A different set of lenses through which to look at and evaluate life. Inviting us to see and align our lives with his kingdom rule. Last week we looked at the first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you didn't listen to that message, I, I encourage you to go back and to our YouTube channel or website and listen or watch that message. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy, those who recognize their need for God. Those are the ones who are profoundly rich and in an enviable state. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, today we come to the second beatitude found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Would you read this out loud with me, the words that Bethany read for us earlier? Here it goes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn in this life are in an enviable position. Really? That sounds so backwards, doesn't it? So backwards to our ears. Why? Because we go out of our way to avoid mourning, right? We'd much rather go to a party than a funeral. Unhappiness is an emotional state to be avoided at all costs. We don't consider those who experience deep grief as those who are blessed. We don't consider them to be the ones to be envied. On the contrary, we usually consider them to be the ones to be pitied. But Jesus is calling us here to look at life through a new set of lenses, through a new set of eyes, eyes that will at times be full of tears. So, if you walked into this room this morning and your life isn't a bed of roses, you you feel the heavy weight of sadness in some form or fashion, your heart is broken. Your dreams are in pieces on the ground. You're deeply grieved over the brokenness that you see in the world around you. Your heart feels the extreme heaviness of some great loss in your life. There's tear stains on your pillowcase. You've come to the right place. My pastoral prayer and hope this morning is that you will find great comfort and hope in these short two phrases from Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, I'm accustomed to preaching on longer passages, longer chunks of scripture, rather than just a single verse of it. Um, So I struggled a bit with how to expound on just two phrases for an entire sermon. Two phrases, 30 minutes. And unlike many preachers, I'm Just not that wordy of a guy. (laughs) So I simply want to ask and answer two questions this morning. The first one is this. How on earth, how on earth can someone experience sadness and grief and loss be considered fortunate? How can somebody experiencing sadness, grief, and loss be considered fortunate in an enviable state? The answer is really implied in Jesus' follow-up phrase. For they shall be what? Comforted, Which leads us to another question, comforted by who? The original audience would have likely filled in this gap with what they already knew from their Old Testament scriptures. We read this in Psalm 34, 18. Go ahead and read this verse aloud with me as well, just to keep you awake, tracking. Here we go. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the broken heart and saves the crushed in spirit. What is the blessedness of mourning? The very presence of God with us as we grieve. You know, the troubling news out of Sudan, Sudan this week reminded me of a time I visited Africa about eight years ago. Um, it was at a gathering of African leaders from eight different countries at a ministry called African... Leadership and rec- Reconciliation Ministries, people in influential positions in government and as, as pastors to try to bring reconciliation to a lot of the tribal warfare and genocides that have just ripped the, those East African countries apart. Some representatives from Sudan were there and one of them was a pastor. And I'll never forget this guy. He had been jailed and beaten to, within an inch of his life numerous times for preaching the gospel in a predominantly Muslim region. The stories he told of loss and trauma and grief were staggering. And I'll never forget what he said during a devotional he was leading one morning with his African colleagues, who also had stories that just blew my mind of loss and trauma. His words were so profound, I, I had a journal with me and I immediately wrote them down. He said this God has given us two gifts salvation. And suffering. If we don't have sadness in our stories, we don't have a story to tell. To never experience sadness is to never really need God in this life. And to never really need God in this life is to miss out on the deep communion with Him that comes when we grieve. When we grieve, waiting in faith for His eternal promises to come true. Wow. And I knew he meant it because he had the scars on his face to prove it. God has given us two gifts, salvation and suffering. And he's with us as we grieve, waiting for his promises to come true. Here is a man who experienced more loss and grief than I'll ever know expressing gratitude for it because of the comfort he had received from God in it. He wasn't calling evil good. Don't misunderstand him. But he was calling God good amidst the evil and the brokenness in the world around him that he had experienced in spades. He, he was saying the gift of grief is the comforting presence of God himself. As we wait for his promises about the destruction of evil, the end of brokenness, and the eternity with him to come to fruition. So here's an answer to the question I posed earlier. How on earth can someone experiencing sadness, grief, and loss be considered fortunate? Say this out loud with me. The blessedness of mourning is the witness of God. Yes, I know that's a made-up word, but... Work with me. The blessedness of mourning is the withness of God. When Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go into the world um, and preach the gospel, you know, he hands them the car keys and said, Okay, I'm gone, you're on. (laughs) As soon as he um, said, Go into all world and make disciples, he said something very interesting. He said, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. And not long after he said that, he ascended up into heaven and he was gone. And they're standing looking at each other going, okay, what do we do now? Well, he just told them, go into all the world and make disciples. But I thought he said he was going to be with us to the very end of the age. Did he not keep his promise to his original disciples? Did he not keep his promise to us? Well, before he ascended, he also told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the arrival of who? The Holy Spirit, who he calls another comforter, another comforter. The blessedness of morning is the comforting witness of God. The blessedness of morning is the comforting witness of God. Specifically, in and through the indwelling Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And the second question I'd like to ask and answer this morning is this. What are the various ways that the Holy Spirit comforts us? What are the various ways that the Holy Spirit comforts us? I'd like to pose three answers to this second question as we close our time together. First of all, the Spirit comforts us as we mourn the brokenness in our world. The Spirit comforts us as we mourn the brokenness in our world. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I feel the weight of how broken our world really is. Probably because I'm more aware of it than I was as a kid. The devastating earthquake in Turkey several months ago that snuffed out 60,000 lives. The ongoing war in Ukraine, this new war in Sudan, Most recently, the mass shooting in Allen, Texas yesterday. Closer to home, the tragic and senseless mass shooting here in Nashville at Covenant School a little over a month ago. And the more I hear about and see and experience the immense brokenness in the world, the more my heart cries out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Does your heart long? For the same things my heart longs for? Does your heart cry out, this isn't the way it's supposed to be? Do you long for things to be made whole and just and right and good? For evil to be eliminated and all things to be made new again? My heart longs for that. Amidst all this brokenness, the Spirit of God comforts us in connection with the Word of God. Because as we hear and read the overarching story of the Bible, it affirms the longing in our souls that this world isn't the way it's supposed to be. Amidst all this brokenness, the Bible tells us the plan of what God has done about it, is doing about it, and will do definitively about it someday. In the story of the Bible, we learn that God shares in our longing for things to be made new, for things to be made right, for evil evil to be vanquished. And in Revelation, we read the prophetic vision from the Apostle John about what is yet to come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And read verse 4 out loud with me. And five. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Amen? As believers, the Spirit of God comforts us with the promise That Jesus is one day going to return to put an end to evil and to make all things new. That, my friends, is our hope. That is what we need to look to amidst the brokenness in our world. Not only does the Spirit comfort us as we mourn the brokenness in our world, the Spirit comforts us as we mourn the brokenness in our own lives. In a room this size, it's inevitable that many of you walked in today with a deep sadness, with a heavy heart, weary from brokenness that's hit close to home. Maybe it's the lack of a relationship. Maybe it's the weight of a wayward child. Maybe it's the longing for a child amidst infertility. Perhaps it's a miscarriage. A concerning health diagnosis the death of a dream, the death of a loved one. In my 50 years of life, I have experienced a good deal of loss, not nearly as much as many, but more than some, just simply based on more decades of life. And when loss hits my front doorstep, it's never fun. In fact, I hate it. And in the midst of it, I oftentimes call out to God and say, God, why me? I complain about it. Say, what are you doing, God? Were you asleep on your watch here? You're supposed to be blessing me. I'm a pastor. Yes, even your pastor has confused theology, practical theology sometimes when pain hits. It's human. It's natural. It's part of my own brokenness. Even I question God. Why are you letting this happen to me? But as I look in hindsight at the various circumstances that have brought grief into my life, I've noticed something. First of all, God's never abandoned me. Secondly, those are the times when I've grown the most in my relationship with him. Those are the times when his presence has become the most real and near to my heart. And in hindsight, I now see that those circumstances of loss in my life are the primary times that God has graciously reoriented the affections of my heart. Reoriented the affections of my heart towards himself. In short, God has used grief and loss to pry my fingers off of the things I thought would bring me security and satisfaction and significance. And in their place, he has given me more of himself. And in this is the unexpected gift of grief. You know, one of the most comforting verses in the Bible for me is one of the shortest. It's the shortest in English, not in Greek. There's another one that's shorter in Greek, but... The shortest verse in English is just two words. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. What was he weeping over? It's from John chapter 11 where Jesus is weeping over the death of his friend Lazarus and weeping with Martha and Mary who are experiencing intense grief over the death of their brother. What's interesting is that Jesus already knew what he was going to do about it, and yet he wept with them. Jesus already knew that just in a few moments, he was going to say, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus would come back from the dead. And yet, in that moment, Jesus wept. Isn't that incredible? He wept along with those who were mourning. He mourned and grieved himself with the brokenness of the world around him. My friends, when we grieve and weep over our losses, we don't weep alone. The spirit of Jesus that indwells us weeps with us. Amen? Death is the greatest grief we will face. And while Jesus weeps with us in its continued presence, we must remember that he's already done something about it. He went to the grave himself in order to defeat it through his resurrection, giving us hope of resurrection when we turn to him in faith. At Lazarus' tomb, Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asked. And I'm going to ask you, do you believe this? Yes. Yes, I do. My friends, death, in all of its awful ugliness, is a defeated enemy. Not only does the Spirit comfort us as we mourn the brokenness in our world and comfort us as we mourn the brokenness in our lives. Thirdly and finally, the Spirit comforts us as we mourn the brokenness in our hearts. One of the signs of spiritual maturity is that you become much less judgmental of others. Why? Based on the simple fact that you become much more aware of your own brokenness and sin. You become much more aware of the ugliness of your own heart. The more you grow in your relationship with God, the more you realize how messed up you really are and how you really know better than anyone else. Because this second beatitude follows on the heels of the first one, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Many commentators extrapolate that this is talking about are making specific reference to mourning over personal brokenness and sin. And while I think that's too narrow of an application by itself, it's certainly within the scope of what Jesus had in mind. When we mourn over our sins, the mistakes we've made, the ways in which we've rebelled against God and caused damage, not only in our own stories, but in the lives of those around us, oftentimes those who we love the most... It becomes very, very easy for us to wallow in guilt and shame. So how does the Spirit provide comfort when we mourn the brokenness that we find when we look in the mirror, when we see the brokenness in our own hearts, when the accuser reminds us of sin, the comforter reminds us of grace. When Satan wants to immobilize us with guilt, the Spirit desires to mobilize us with grace. And because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in our place and on our behalf, the Spirit reminds us that we no longer sit by the seat of judgment as condemned sinners, we stand by the throne of grace as forgiven saints. That is who we are in Christ. And in this, my friends, there is tremendous comfort. So in review, the Spirit comforts us as we mourn the brokenness in our world, in our lives, and in our hearts. As we close our time together this morning, the worship team makes their way back to the stage. I wanna invite you to come to the communion table this morning as we remember what Jesus has done for us. And not only is a communion an opportunity for us to look back and remember, remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross as we take these symbols of the cup and the bread, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood for us. It's also an opportunity for us to look forward to the day when we will share a banquet with Jesus. When his kingdom comes in its fullness, when evil is vanquished, when all is made new. When Jesus shared that Passover meal the night before his death with his disciples, he took the cup. Not only did he say, This is cup is the new covenant in my blood, he also said, I will not share, drink of the, the fruit of the vine again until I come in my kingdom. And, and so communion can remind us of two things. What's past, the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, in our place, but what is to come, the second coming of Jesus, when all things are made new and evil is vanquished. My friends, that day is coming. My prayer is that it's coming soon. I'm gonna pray for us after the worship team after that, the worship team is gonna lead us in a couple of songs. As I do, I invite you to stand and come in groups of about 10, gather around the table, partake in communion together as we look back on the sacrifice that was made for our behalf and as we look forward to the coming when we will share in drinking the fruit of the vine in the kingdom at a great banquet feast. As you come, I encourage you To bring the sadness that's in your heart. To bring the loss that you're carrying to the table. Remembering what Jesus has done. Looking forward to what Jesus is going to do. You're not alone. He weeps with you. The blessedness of mourning is the withness of our Savior. Let's pray. Father thank you for this reminder this tangible reminder as we take the elements of what you have done and what is yet to come as we gather around the table this morning as a church comfort our hearts knowing that we do not weep alone knowing that we have a savior who weeps with us and is returning soon may that day come soon we pray may Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.